0: idea. Innovate, develop, experiment, adapt. This is how organizations grow. Wouldn't it be nice to know that someone is listening to your ideas for growing our organization? Well, we are. If you're a staff member of the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections or Board of Probation and Parole, and you have ideas for improving efficiency, improving outcomes, or reducing costs, please be a part of our new IDEA initiative. Your experience is important and your ideas matter. We invite you to submit an IDEA by emailing your IDEA to ra at p-a-dot-gov. You may also use the link to the old Betagov email address, which can be found on DocNet under the Initiatives tab on the Betagov page. For more information, an IDEA webpage will soon be added to the Initiatives tab on DocNet. Every IDEA is considered and will be followed up on. And please, stay tuned for more info on our IDEA initiative.
1: Kensington area, of Philadelphia is probably one of the largest open air heroin am marketplace around. Half the caseloads that my people had were people who either sold heroin at one point or committed other crimes like burglaries to support heroin habits. And it gave them like a, a, a safe period where they can send their kids to the playground where there was a, the drug traffic wasn't, wasn't going through there.
2: This is what's great about science is that it sometimes, you know, can teach us things that we are, you know, that we're just wrong about. I think there's substantial space for new innovation. So it would be complacent and and lazy to say, well, I think we know enough at this point, so we don't need Mm -hmm. to innovate anymore. There's huge opportunities to transform lives in this area. I mean, utterly transform lives.
0: On this episode of Pracademically Speaking, we talk to the Department of Corrections' first ever winner of the New Staff Innovation Award, Parole Supervisor Louis Zeon, for
2: his lead in cleaning up the largest open-air heroin market in Philadelphia. We also talk with Keith Humphries, a psychiatrist from Stanford University, about the opioid epidemic and what we know and don't know about what is effective in responding to it
3: my absolute pleasure today to have on the podcast our first ever uh, winner of the new staff innovations award Lewis Zeon. Uh, he's a parole agent supervisor in the Philadelphia area and uh, Lewis welcome to the welcome to the podcast thanks for being on thank you thank you for having me Lewis I wonder if you could just uh, first just tell us about your professional background uh, how did you get into Parole. How long have you been there, and maybe some of the more interesting
1: aspects of your career along the way? Okay. Well, I I started out back in 1980 in the Philadelphia Police Department, and I I worked there till um, 2002 when I retired, and then I got into parole in 2004. So so I've been working in the Kensington area since basically 1980. So you've been there for a a while. A while, yes.
3: And you were in the police department before that yes sir okay um and have you been in the same area uh the whole career your whole career on parole
1: uh well actually i worked out in 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 for a couple of years dealing with sex offenders and then uh, i worked i did a little bit of internal affairs work for the parole board for a couple of years then i came back to the kensington area in 2013
3: so, uh, let's move into talking about this idea that you won the award for. Uh, could you set it up and tell us about the problem that you were faced, uh, you and your agents?
1: Okay. Well, actually, to really, really understand that you should actually drive around and see it. But what what, what, had, what had happened is, is that the, the Kensington area of Philadelphia is probably one of the largest, has probably the largest opening our heroin marketplace around and basically we've had buyers from New Jersey, Delaware, as far north as New York, from Maryland and they all end up down in here because the the, the heroin's a little bit cheaper and a little bit stronger. What I was faced with was, was um, basically half the caseloads that my people had were people who either sold heroin at one point or Committed other crimes like burglaries to support heroin habits, and, and we had a lot of people with them, with ongoing addiction issues. That that the treatment process didn't didn't always really help them, so I figured I would have to attack it at you know attack the problem at its root. So I used basically just a, what I would call a rollover plan since we had limited manpower. And I picked one area, and that was around them, McPherson Square. And I had, at the time, when I started, I only had five agents working for me. Now I have eight. And uh, I'd have two agents at a time just roll in there for an hour a day, just sit there, just sit there and and maintain a presence. They would do that over the course of a week. And then basically towards the middle of the program, we'd start looking for people that we supervised. But since they had spotted us there, they weren't there. But, but I noticed that if if we had agents roll there between two and two, two and four, the playground up at the top of the library would start to be used because the people would feel a little bit safer because there was somebody there and and the, uh, The addicts and the settlers weren't, weren't hanging out there at that time. So I changed the parameter of, of of the program just just to give the people of the neighborhood a little bit of free time that you could take their kids to the playground. And and that's just how it's that's how it started. It's
3: now did you coordinate this with the Philadelphia Police Department too? Were they involved or was it primarily a parole initiative?
1: Well, it was a parole initiative, but they were also out there. They they they, they, they started having a presence out there, I actually a much larger presence than ours, where they would have bike patrols go through every once in a while mounted patrols and they would have um the recruits from the police academy classes um walking beats in that area and but it, it wasn't there was any up. real true coordination with them but we were all out there together
3: yeah and what was the results
1: of this what
3: what kind of success did you see
1: well what it, it gave the people a chance to go in there and i think a saturday about a month and a half ago they went in there and they they really did a nice job cleaning the playground and it gave them like a, a a safe period where they can send their kids to the playground where there was a the drug traffic wasn't wasn't going through there
3: did you see a reduction in uh
1: overdoses or uh... well there, there's been this there's been a, a reduction in overdoses but um i couldn't say that it caused a reduction in overdose it, it basically I was trying to give the people who lived in the neighborhood a place to go for an hour to a day, where they didn't have to deal with the um, the drug sales and the drug yeah. use.
3: So almost a disorder uh, maintenance type of approach, just clean right. up the disorder, make it a uh, a safer place for for kids to come out and enjoy the right. park. Uh, what other challenges are you seeing in general uh, with the whole opioid epidemic? In Philadelphia. I'm assuming, uh, like you said, it's, it's a huge problem there like it is in the rest of the state. Uh, it, do you see other things that we could be doing better in that area?
0: Well,
1: I I, I don't know if I should say this, but I believe that the treatment programs, that's it, like detox beds in Philadelphia are, are very hard to get. And I don't think the treat the inpatient portions of any of the treatment programs are actually long enough. I, I think it would take it. A minimum of six months of inpatient before anybody could think about sending anybody back out, you know, out, you know, back out to their homes, but the but the, the, the payments only go for 28 days. You know, you got 10 days of detox and mm-hmm. 28 days of inpatient, and I don't think that most of those people that we send through those kind of programs are ready at the end of 28 or 30 days.
3: And you're only, right now, you're only able to get people in for, you said, 28 days? On average,
1: well, uh, the Department of Public Assistance pays for um, I think it's 28 days. Okay. It's 15, and then they, they can go another 15 based on the doctor or okay. the person running the treat the inpatient program. The typical detox program is 10 days long. Now, the parole board has them um, centers that you can send people to, but not for detox. I try I try to work mostly through the um. The normal therapeutic way therapeutic community get people detoxed and, and to get them into treatment But when worse comes to worse you have to go send them through the uh, through the Department of Corrections Which is 10 days of detox in the state prison and then to an inpatient halfway back program <laughs> And they can last anywhere from they're usually about 60 days are you
3: do you have in your area specialized caseloads for uh drug offenders?
1: I, I don't have none of my agents that are specialized in, in doing drug offenders. We do have in our division one agent that handles specialized drug caseload.
3: I knew that was something that the state was that was being done in certain places around the state. Wasn't sure if that was in your area or not.
1: Well, the, the, the agent, Agent Manson, that does that, she am. Um, Handles everybody within the division. Okay, and she has a limited caseload because there's a um, I I think they're seeing an enhanced level which is four times a month They're on an electronic monitor and that kind of a thing But basically we have we're a general caseload.
3: So now moving a little bit more broadly Uh one of the reasons that we do this podcast is to encourage staff throughout the, the department and and parole to think outside the box, think about uh, creative or innovative um, strategies to tackle various problems that they face in whatever area of the department that they're in, uh, what would you say um, are key elements uh, that um, staff should think about if they're going to be successful in coming up with uh, solutions or innovations, what what um, key elements uh, make for a good idea?
1: Well. You have to be flexible. It's like my my initial plan was to uh, find our people using drugs and, and in the area, bringing them in, send them to detox and sending them to treatment. Well, once they realized we were there, they just weren't showing up. Our people. And then once everybody else realized we were there, and then the police had stepped up their presence, nobody was coming. Nobody was showing up. They weren't overdosing in the library. You know, they didn't have librarians having the Narcan people there. So. And then I, then I saw when I was at the, the times I went out there that the playground gathered more use when there was more um, when we were out there and the police were out there. So I just changed the parameters of the program to um, just to assist the community in um, taking back a little piece of, piece of space for a little bit of time, you know, because it's, it's a manpower issue. I can't have people there
0: eight
1: hours a day, three shifts a day because I, it just not feasible.
3: So being able to adapt, right? Uh, and, as you come up with strategies, is a key right. element. It sounds like what, what you're saying.
1: Right, and let's uh, just to say in the Marines, just adapt, and improvise.
3: Uh huh. What are some of the changes you've seen over the decades, over
1: your career in parole? Since I, I started in the parole board, there's there's a lot less. There's a, there's a a larger reluctance to arrest. I remember when I first started working in a CC center. If they looked at the person wrong that was working in a CC center, they'd be off and back to jail. That kind of thing. right. And and then over time, there's there's been more reluctance to arrest and and, and, and going towards treatment more. But 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 I found with the, with the heroin addicts, so sometimes time away. That's why I like the the, the idea of six months of um, inpatient treatment. Gives her body a chance to recover. Okay, because you can't you just can't go for 10 days in, into a detox and then go the, the, the body doesn't recover enough. You know what I mean? Sometimes you got to look after the physical as well as the um, the therapeutic stuff the, Right, you know the addiction issue because if the body doesn't recover I, I think you would have a harder time ma'am, um, beating beating yeah. beating the, beating the uh, addiction
3: Yeah, that, that makes sense makes a lot of sense I guess in parting, uh, what would you say to any staff member um, to encourage them to come up with a good idea?
1: Well, it, it, if you have the idea, you should run it with your supervisor or your boss, right? But it it, it has to meet within the guidelines of them um, of what we do, and, and you can't be afraid to use a plan that might have come from another agency or 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 like the plan I used was basically a it was an old police rollover manpower plan when manpower is low and you want to flood an area with people and i just um i just crafted to, crafted it to the knees of the parole board as opposed to making an arrest at the final at at the end of it you, mm-hmm. you can't be afraid to go other places to get ideas
3: well that's great uh and uh sounds like um the project there uh, in Philadelphia was really successful and um uh, and I, I want to say congratulations again on winning that uh, the first staff innovation award. Thank you. And um, thanks again also for being on the podcast episode, and, and best of uh, wishes to you uh, in your future endeavors. Thank you, sir. I want to welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Keith Humphreys. Uh, he's a psychiatrist. In, at Stanford University and um, has a distinguished background, um, experience in, in the White House and a number of other appointments. Uh, so I guess just to start off, um, Dr. Humphreys, if you could tell us a little bit about your professional background.
2: Sure. And and thank you for having me on the podcast. So I've uh, been doing addiction-related work for about Oh, God, a long time, 30-odd years or so. Uh, I was an undergraduate student at Michigan State University, a psychology major, and I was literally flipping burgers. And a friend of mine came in and offered me a job working in the medical school where I would make $4.40 an hour, which was more than I was making flipping burgers. And I said, wow, Wow. that sounds great. Yeah. And it was an addiction study. Uh, And I would have done it for anything, uh, both for the money and to get out of that outfit. Um, and, uh, so I, but I'm about the only person I think who got into the addiction field for, for the money, $4 and 40 cents an hour. Um, but why I stayed in it and then I persisted in it through a doctorate and then coming out here to Stanford and also working at the, in the veterans administration is, um, that it's an incredibly engaging topic. I mean, both at a human level, when you work with people, talk to people, you see everything that is powerful about the human experience. You see love, loss regret, uh, struggles with control, faith, death, um, you know, uh, recovery, uh, and, and that that makes it endlessly engaging. And as a scientific question, it's really fascinating. I mean, just the phenomena that we are capable of doing this, um, you know, to ourselves and having to cope with it in ways that, you know... Um, It seems we're not very well set up for evolutionarily to deal with this particular class of of molecule. And that's kind of fascinating, that mystery. Uh, And finally, as you mentioned, I'm a policy-interested person. And the great thing about addiction, if you are interested in public policy, is there's not many discussions you can't join. I mean, if people are talking about corrections, uh, well, addiction has a role there. If they're talking about housing, uh, you got something to say. Uh, labor, um, employment, yep, addiction's relevant there. The You know, welfare for kids, uh, child welfare, family welfare, addiction again, relevant. So that's another thing about it. It just connects to so many different things that um, there's always a way to apply what you learn in this field to the social problems that the country's experiencing.
3: And tell us about some of your professional, uh, Appointments. I understand that you've worked in the White House and a number of different appointments.
2: Yeah, so I've done a lot of work in policy, different kinds of things. I started during the George W. Bush administration and I literally, um, you know, cold called uh, the White House, friend of a friend gave me some numbers. And I actually called and left, left probably the most naive voicemail in the world where I said, I'm an addiction researcher and I'm interested in policy and I'm wondering if I could get some kind of, you know, internship there. And uh, as it happened, I called right around the time of the the Bush Gore election was still being fought. I mean, the votes had been cast, but they were still debating who was going to be president. And I guess they people had a lot of free time in their hands because someone took mercy on this uh, naive guy and called him back and said, you know, we're just we're just pretty much sitting around waiting to see who the president is, and we're not doing anything else. So you can come by if you want. And I did, and I, I gave a, a talk there and about what I was interested in, which at that point was. I had a heavy interest in recovery organizations like AA and NA and things like that. And um, that translated into uh, a three-month detail, uh, I guess you'd call it, uh, from a federal viewpoint, where I worked on uh, President Bush's demand reduction uh, proposal because he had had, uh, addiction in his family. He said that he was upfront about it and wanted more investment in that area. So I worked on that, and then subsequently I was appointed to... uh, uh, be on the board of uh, SAMHSA, which is the, the big agency that gives out the substance use block grant. And then the president appointed me to a White House Commission on Drug-Free Communities, which focuses on prevention. And And those experiences and others I had, including through the VA, where I was like helping the, the my center would help the VA undersecretary like work with Congress and talk about what VA was doing, because VA has a, a very big treatment system and at that point we had over 320 programs nationally. Um, sort of got me a reputation, I think, as a policy-oriented scientist. And so subsequent to that, um, my dear friend Tom McClellan was asked by his friend, Joe Biden, um, of course, Vice President Biden, um, to come to Washington and work in uh, the White House Drug Policy Office in the Obama administration. And Tom called me and said, you know, I don't understand Washington at all. I'm just a scientist, but I know you do. Um, you know, I'm only going to do this if you go with me, which was a very kind thing to say, and uh, I did. And so I, I went. At this point, I, I had a, uh, I was there full time. Um actually, more than full time. Those are crazy jobs. But I was there basically right at the start of the administration, and I took a year off from my duties here in Palo Alto to do that. And I got to write a big chunk of the drug strategy and contribute addiction uh, content to the Affordable Care Act and also work a bit on the uh, HIV-AIDS strategy with the uh, people in the White House uh, Office on AIDS, so it was a very gratifying and exciting year.
3: Uh, Well, I understand that some of your recent work has been around the opioid epidemic, and I think that's an intersection where a lot of our listeners will be interested in because we're right in the heart of it here in Pennsylvania. Uh, how did you get into specifically that line of work and, and what is some of your work focused on in the area of the opioid epidemic?
2: Well, I, I, um, I mean, biographical thing is I, I grew up in West Virginia and, uh, it's ground zero for the opioid epidemic. So I have been drawn to that. I mean, Pennsylvania is in Ohio or the other two states, I think that's probably the hardest hit. So we, we all, we, we all know what it's like. Um, and I, uh, you know, started to notice multiple people from my hometown reading their obituaries. And after I got back from Washington, I, you know, I, I feel a very strong connection to my state still. And uh, I, I started to work with a uh, a guy named Dan Foster, who's a physician who was serving in the West Virginia State Senate. And he said, you know, we are we are really suffering. You know, we need as much help as we can get. And you know he kindly invited me. He and another uh, member of the House of Delegates named Don Perdue invited me to come back and testify in House and Senate and meet with the Governor and start working with uh, treatment providers and you know county officials and all that. And that really um, focused me on opioids. i mean, i'd I'd always been interested. I'd start my career with the things that were important then. you know, cocaine was very big then, and Alcohol is always big in America, even though people think of it as a drug. It always is a really damaging drug for us as a country. So I'd been doing that kind of stuff. But it was that, doing the work in West Virginia. And then just the world pushed me that way. I mean, um, uh, because it's not just in West Virginia. So it's a pretty rare week where I don't get a call from a family where someone is struggling with opioid addiction uh, from a state legislature, mayor, mayor uh a, a journalist who's covering it somewhere. I mean, it's just so pervasive that if you work in the addiction field, whether you wanted to or not, you are now doing opioids all the time as a uh, yeah. I mean, it's become it becomes part of your job and part of your life. Um and so that that's pulled me in and I, I did work a lot. Most the most recent thing I did is working with the Congress on um a big bill they just passed the Support Act. I spent oh, a lot right. of time right. on that. I testified in a couple uh, times and worked with the House and Senate uh, to try to get some good things in there. And there are some good things in there, I'm happy to say. In fact, I also, I worked, by the way, with one of your senators, Patrick Toomey. Um, oh, the, yeah. Okay. Yep. On the Medicare, yeah. Uh, Medicare lock-in. Yeah, that's one of the nice things that happened. One of his staffers called me and said that he, he read my piece in the Washington Post and liked it. That was sort of a nice feeling.
3: <laughs> so what are some of the unique challenges that you've seen this opioid epidemic bring compared to Um, say, other drugs or other um, drug-related policy
2: issues? Probably the most important thing is that the healthcare system, which we normally look at as a a thing that helps us get out of addiction epidemics, is at fault for starting it. And that's really different than cocaine. It's really different than heroin. I mean, we started it, as a, you know. We we, we had uh, opioids. We we're pretty careful about them for most of the 20th century. You get them for cancer. You get them for, uh, you know, palliative care. You get them for surgery, and they're essential for all those things. You get them in the hospital, but we didn't tend to give them out for chronic non-cancer pain, and that was a change the country made, starting in the 90s, and got to the point at the peak where we were prescribing 250 million uh, prescriptions a year which is, you know, more prescriptions than we have adults. And when you do that, it's just like anything else. You know, if you if you flood a society with cigarettes, a lot of people smoke. You flood a society with alcohol, a lot of people drink. You flood a society with opioids, a lot of people mm-hmm. start using opioids. And so that that's really fundamentally different. And and it's it's both good and bad. I mean it's it's bad in the sense that the healthcare system can distribute a med, uh, you know a drug way more efficiently than any criminal organization can, for sure. Uh, on the other hand, at least you have some regulatory control over the prescription opioids. So you know you you know doctors are licensed, uh, mm-hmm. uh, hospitals are accredited, things like that, and you can apply some control there. Uh, we didn't for about fifteen years, but now we are doing that a bit. Um, but the, you know, real that that really does make it fundamentally different. And I guess the other thing is that too that it affects trust. You know. Um, we'd like to trust our doctors. Doctors want to be trusted. And you need to get better from addiction through treatment. You really do need to trust the care system because you're disclosing something that's stigmatized and that's frightening. And, uh, you know, you you want to be able to to talk honestly and all that. But at the same time, there's this black mark on the system's reputation because it helped get this thing going in the first place. So that's a a painful thing for doctors for people like me who work in medical schools and try to train train doctors it's a uh you know something we're going to have to all work to overcome
3: yeah yeah so so moving now into uh, solutions or policies programs practices and i want to start at the state level more generally and then move into criminal justice more specifically um so first of all, on the state level, what what should we be thinking about in terms of things to do to address the, the opioid epidemic?
2: So I try to think when I think about policy is what do you have a lot of influence on at your level of government? Like, you know, what can you do as a mayor? What can you so what are states really well positioned to do? Well, states have a huge role in medicine. It is really states that run, you know, medical boards are state entities, not federal entities. I mean, the DEA issues a prescribing license, but everything else in medicine just about is, is uh, overseen at the state level. So uh, they can do a lot in terms of the standards doctors are held to, what education is required. They also can do regulation about how much access pharmaceutical companies can have to, uh, you know, state licensed healthcare facilities and hospitals to make sure that the docs are getting good information as opposed to corporate information. That's all important. The other thing is, as you know well, working in corrections, the states are really where the action is at in terms of uh, correctional facilities. Um, huge number of Americans do not understand that the federal government doesn't matter that much about prison policy. Um, it's about 12% or so of our prisoners. It's, it's at the state level. So, you can do a heck of a lot um, in, in uh, corrections, Mm-hmm. Because, you know, most people who have, particularly people who are addicted to heroin, are going to come in contact with corrections. And, con- and contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not their per se possession of heroin that's going to get them in there. It's because they're going to do other things. Um, right. You know, especially property crime, a huge amount of property crime is driven by right. opioid addiction. But, you know, they'll assault somebody or they'll steal something or they'll break into someone's house and so on. And, you know, there's that is obviously sad. We don't want there to be crime. Uh, you know, we, we do sometimes have to punish. We do it, uh, because we enjoy it because we see, you know, purpose, accountability and protecting victims. But it's, it's in that, that part of it is, is, know not necessarily uplifting, but it is an opportunity, um, to get people on a, a different path. Um, if you, uh, you know, administer the responsibility uh, in intelligent fashion, as as, I mean, I I know you guys in Pennsylvania are very forward thinking, you know, the kinds of things we can do in terms of, for example, you know, uh, the structure of prisons, the setting of rules, how sanctioning works, um, how we operate parole systems to, uh, you know, make sure we drug test, make sure, uh, you know, we have swift, certain and fair responses to drug use or non-drug use and so on. I mean, there's there's a lot there uh, that states can do to make a big difference.
3: So speak a little bit more about this So Certain and Fair. I know you and I have had communication on that approach. And how do you see that fitting into uh, treatment for opioid use disorder? How, uh, describe, I guess, for our listeners a little bit about how that works and then how
2: it fits into uh, treatment. Sure. So start, start with the just what's it like to be addicted. So for most people, they have a really strong urge to use. It's really hard to think ahead. Uh, it's really hard to control impulses. It's really hard to be planful. Um, you're really thinking about how do I get my next biker? How do I get my next shot of heroin? And norm- And you confront a criminal justice system that operates on completely different assumptions. It tends to assume people have a long-term perspective, that they care about things that might happen rather than problems that will happen. So they say, you know, if we catch you again with possession and intent to distribute, uh, it'll take us a long time, but we may eventually do it. And if so, you'll eventually have a hearing. And if you have a hearing and if you're convicted, then you're going to get a five-year sentence or something. And that just doesn't deter somebody who's thinking, you know, six hours ahead, 12 hours ahead, 24 hours ahead. So instead, what you want to do is move to a system that um, doesn't punish, it doesn't worry so much about the severity of the punishment, but focuses on that it's swift and it's certain, because that's where the person's mind is at. Hmm. So when they're on probation, what you want to say is, uh, you know, you're going to be tested regularly, like, uh, you know, maybe daily or every other day. And um, if you uh, test and it turns out you are not using, that's terrific. Immediate rewards. You are free. You can stay out there, enjoy your family, work at your job, whatever you want to do. But if you are using drugs, there will be an immediate consequence, not delayed. Immediate, and and I don't mean possibly, but certainly. And it doesn't have to be a big deal. It could be we will hold you in a cell overnight, or um, you know, we will uh, you know increase the conditions of your supervision, or we will add another week on the end of this twenty-four uh, week um, you know. Pro, uh, probation or parole period that you have, um, but it'll still matter to the person because there's a lot of evidence. we We seem not to care as much about the severity of the punishment as we do. Is it really going to happen to me right away today? And those kinds of models, you know, they are they have to be implemented well, uh, but when they are implemented well, we see people do substantially better. They use a lot less of their drug, whatever their drug is, and this definitely applies to alcohol too. Um, and they're less likely to reoffend, and they're less likely to end up in prison. And so that model, which you know is working very well in a lot of states, needs to become normative in how we run probation and how we run parole.
3: How about um, another area that we've invested a lot in uh, at the Commonwealth level, and then also here at the Department of corrections, which is medication assisted treatments what's your yeah. take on that are those is, is this a useful approach and, and absolutely is it effective
2: yeah, absolutely so I was just in a prison um i'm just visiting obviously not in <laughs> not, <laughs> okay. I was just yeah I was just in prison in in uh in March in Rhode island that's uh doing buprenorphine treatment at um And the effects are pretty, uh, you know, pretty remarkable because what happens, as you know, is when people are dependent on the opioid, then they, they, you know, come in and contrary to stereotype, getting a regular supply of opioids in prison is actually hard to do. So most people are not getting their drug. That means they are feeling sick and agitated. They're difficult to manage. They can't pay attention to rehabilitation. Sometimes they're aggressive. uh, They're in misery. Then when they get out, Their tolerance is way down. If they happen to return to opioid use, their regular dose can be fatal, and we have massive fatality in the first few weeks when people get out. So, a different way to handle that is say, look, if you come in and you're addicted to heroin, we will put you right away onto a substitute medication like methadone, like buprenorphine. Then they are engaged, alert, uh, and uh, able to function as a prisoner. It's actually easier for the staff too because they're not dealing with somebody who's you know, uh, chronically agitated, grouchy, or just sick and need of a lot of uh, physical support, uh, and then they transition on the way out. They haven't lost their tolerance, and um, they have a care provider on the outside. They're far less likely to end up back in prison again. Um, so I think it's like a win all the way around. There are issues you have to be careful about diversion. You don't want you don't want buprenorphine or methadone to become part of the prison economy. Uh, and some prisoners do try to. Um, you know, smuggle their their pill out, hold it in their mouth, that kind of thing. But you know, you, you, if you're if you're if you're careful about it, you can you, you can take care of most of that kind of stuff. It's worth the, it's worth the trouble. Um, but you, you really and you know, you benefit the the uh, person concerned, but you also benefit just the overall environment of the place. And by the way, there is nothing at all inconsistent with doing that and at the same time having you know Swiss certain. In- and fair sanctions. They don't compete with each other. Somebody could be on buprenorphine uh, and participate in those programs and still be tested for heroin, be tested for cocaine, and so on, while still getting their medication. Um, so, it's a complementary uh, approach not competitive ones.
3: What about group treatment, traditional group treatment? I know here the thought among some folks is that the swift, certain, and fair approach is at odds with that, with like a therapeutic community. We we have therapeutic communities in our prison, Yeah, a lot of like group-based, um, traditional model group-based treatment. Uh, what's your take on group-based treatment and the evidence for the effectiveness of them and how they fit in with these other approaches?
2: So if, I, I'm glad you brought that up because one thing I know you guys have done and I have told other people about is you can do some of this with certain and fair stuff inside the prison um, to reduce disorder, violence, noise, and things to create, create a more therapeutic environment. So I think fundamentally, um, again, I think these things are aligned. Uh, when, when people know that the environment is stable, I mean, the social environment, um, where uh, there is order, where um, they don't have to worry about the rules changing every single day, that puts them in a it gets them out of the f- constant fight or flight mode that you have to be in in a disordered correctional facility and allows them to have all kinds of more humane interactions, including in a group therapy setting. Um, but just in general, just, you know, the fact that you know, the average day is not filled with the sense that you get in some correctional facilities that I've been in, that at any moment, uh, you know, a fight's going to break out. And so you constantly have to be, you know, w- watching and be wary all the time. Yeah um and you know it when 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 correctional facilities you can really feel it and i've been in a lot a lot of them and you can feel it in, in in ones that are fundamentally disordered and the staff is overwhelmed uh you know the security values will overcome therapeutic values i mean you know, there'll be lockdowns every day there'll be you know um there's, there isn't even enough trust to to have somebody you know be out of regular activities and get to their counseling and all that kind of stuff. And people don't want to say things to each other in group because they're worried about where is this going to go and you know that gang's feuding with this gang and all this kind of stuff. So the, they they work they work together. I mean, it's very much like you know <laughs> you know parents sometimes say you know does a child need love or does a child need limits? <laughs> well, you know both. Uh, what, yeah. what do I, same as me, <laughs> you know, I like, you know, I need, I, I, I need some expectations and some structure in my life and I need some support and appreciation and, you know, p- prisoners are people too. They're just, you know, and, and, um, and fr- frankly, so are the staff. I mean, I, I, I one thing I notice is when the, the, the contrary to the stereotype of, of, uh, how some people look at it, that it's the guards versus the inmates, when in fact right. the environment is stable for the inmates it's actually a much more pleasant place to be a correctional officer.
3: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, what does the evidence say on uh, self-help groups like uh, AA and NA?
2: So I, I spent a lot of time on that, in part because when I first heard about them, I thought they were ridiculous, honestly. Um, I, I was at uh, working at Michigan State Medical School, and I was trying to decide what I was going to do with my career. Is it going to be a, you mm-hmm. know, physician or psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever. And so I was really thinking that like it's really high level training that makes you qualified to t- treat addicted people. And then I, I met people who were in AA and I was like, what 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 is this? I mean you don't have any degrees, you don't have any training, you don't give medications, you you, you don't you don't read scientific articles. This can't possibly work. I'm quite dismissive of it. Um, but, you know, this is what's great about science is that it sometimes, you know, can teach us things that we are you know, that we're just wrong about, and I was just wrong, and I started to study those groups because I was so fascinated by the strangeness of them, and it was fairly consistent, you know, the people who went to them were far less likely to, you know, like after treatment, we were following people in this particular study after treatment, um, they were far less likely to relapse, and over time, the designs have gotten stronger and stronger, so now you have randomized studies being done Mm -hmm. in lots of different places, Showing that um, if you if you give you know one in every two randomly picked people in a treatment facility a structured introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, they are again far less likely to relapse, and it's not it can't just be self selection because it's randomized. So that has really you know changed a lot of minds, including my own, over the last twenty five years that yeah. you know, we have really strong evidence for the benefits of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's less study of the drug groups, but there's certainly some, which is pretty encouraging. Um, and at the same time saying that is addiction is a tough condition to get into recovery from. So, that does, uh, it does not mean that everyone who goes to those groups gets better. The people who founded those groups didn't even make that claim. They, they knew too... They had too much better experience to make that claim. But you know what when we say something works in, in you know in, in in treatment research, what we mean is you know on average, the average person who goes is better off than the average person who doesn't, and that is right. really true, as it is true for say cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, which is what I was trained to do so mm-hmm. i've learned to be very respectful of people uh, in those programs, and i'm grateful I see them as an ally, not as a competitor. you know they make my life easier hmm.
3: and, oh, so this might be a hard question to answer, but Seems to me everything can't work. So, are, are there things that uh, research has said, especially in this area of um, responding to and treating the opioid problem, that are not particularly effective, or, or has research oh, around yeah. any area? And what can you say about that?
2: I'm, I'm glad you say that because there is a oh, too much of a norm of being uncritical. I think in the in the in the in the false sense that that is somehow supportive. Um, Uh, But, you know, some things that don't work. So, attack therapy, the hot seat, um, uh, self-confortability, you know, things that were very popular, you know, uh, in Synanon and some of the early uh, therapeutic communities, you know, breaking down people's, uh, you know, allegedly immature defenses and, you know, until they were sobbing and crying and all those kinds of... Mm -hmm. That that, uh, does not work. I mean, it seems to be traumatic for people, uh, and they don't do very well in that kind of environment. Um psychoanalytic, psychodynamic exploration of people's, you know, childhood and dynamics, uh, and while not dealing with their substance use, which is viewed only as a symptom. That's another big waste of time. I mean that that is an idea that started with Freud, but people still have it and, and there's plenty of people who, you know, say, well, the the alcohol is the self medication for the real problem, which is, you know, depression based on feeling unloved that goes back to childhood or something. And if I just treat that, the alcohol problem will go away because it's not, it's not the problem. It's a symptom. No evidence for that at all. Um, you have to deal. And, and, and by the way, it doesn't matter. It could be true. The reason the person started drinking is due to depression. But if you consume any drug for a really long time, it's a problem. It doesn't matter why. You know, it's like I started using cocaine when my marriage went south 20 years ago, and I've been using it ever since. The problem now is the cocaine, right. I, you know, right. and you got to deal with that. And so and I work on that a lot with psychiatrists because they they're often sort of implicitly still trained in that model of addiction isn't real. It's just a medication of the real problem. Um, so that's something we, I think we need to just abandon that. Uh, and then last, I would say, um, uh, sort of, uh, short-term detox. Uh, so, so the thing you see on the back of a lot of free newspapers in, um, uh, you know, big cities is, you know, you can fly somewhere, we'll anesthetize you and detox you rapidly in 48 hours, get all the drugs out of your system, you'll be Mm -hmm. cured, um, yeah, you, you will get the drugs out of your system, but you're you're addicted you walk out addicted still and with your tolerance down low, and in fact you may just then die as a result. Mm-hmm. Um so that's another practice that continues in the field that is uh worse than nothing.
3: Is the verdict still out on safe injection
2: sites? Yes. Um there, there is um you know a very strong advocacy Feeling around those, um, but you know, I, I I think the RAND review, which just came out, is is really gets the data right on those. You know, there are zero controlled studies. The studies that have been done are very weak. Something like eighty-five percent of all the studies are just of two sites that are run mm-hmm. by founders, and we you know, which is the the Sydney site and the Vancouver site run by, and, and a lot of the studies are done by the people who founded those programs and whose passion yeah. is based in those programs. And I'm, I'm not, I mean, I, it's great to have passion for caring for people with drug problems. Sure. I mean, we, God bless them. We need more of that, right? But I, I, one thing I know we all agree on is that we are all excellent, that we all agree on that. You know, um, you, you don't find people anywhere in this field to say, what I do doesn't work. For that, I'm sure. Right. You know, we right. all know that. That's just a human, we all have that vanity, right? So to really test something, it actually usually takes like five or 10 years until the honeymoon is over. And then people who aren't super invested in it say, all right, I'm going to design a study at equipoise that could prove or disprove, and then we'll see. And plenty of things that over my career have come out, and they're like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. In fact, therapeutic communities were like that in the 70s, and, um, and drug courts, and um and, and methadone, and it's, it, it, you know, they're just, this is going to solve everything. And then yeah. five or 10 years, we get more dispatch. it's not that then we say it's garbage usually, but just yeah. there's a lot of challenges here. There's implementation problems. There's people for whom this doesn't seem to work. Um, you know, it seems to work when the founders are doing it, but no one else can replicate it, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I think for safe injection sites, the honeymoon is, is ending. Maybe some of the newlyweds are grieving that, um, but now we're getting to where we say, "Well, it's it's, it's the evidence is a lot weaker than, than its advocates have said."
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's a good segue to uh, wrap up on a topic uh, of innovation, and uh, this podcast is part of our innovation initiative here at the department called Idea, which stands for Innovate, Develop, Experiment, and Adapt. And the reason we started the podcast was so that our staff and other listeners could hear from experts such as you, but also hear from our own staff. So each episode has an expert at the beginning and then one of our own staff, whether it's a CEO or a parole agent or a counselor uh, who's doing stuff on the ground. And then we want our listeners to listen to that and get excited and go out and try new things. That's great. So I I would ask, uh, you know, what? How much room do you see for continual innovation in this area, for new ideas um, that have not been identified yet to tackle this um, opioid problem?
2: I think there's substantial space for new innovation um, of two kinds. So one innovation is just in the pure sense of inventing something new that hasn't been done. Um, the second one is inventing new ways to implement things that we know work, but we never seem to do. Mm-hmm. And those are, you know, those are diff- you know, because there are plenty of things that make really good sense, like, you know, contingency management. We have a ton of, e- you know, evidence on that, but we need people who can innovate about how do you persuade correctional facilities to do this? Or how do you persuade healthcare facilities to do this? And that is also a, a You know, a part uh, oftentimes takes innovation as well. And and maybe it's innovations in messaging or in incentives or, um, you know, building new networks that we haven't had before um, to to translate, uh, you know, this stuff in a credible way. And I think think that's really important too. Um, And last, just say, you know, it's great. We can do a lot for people who are addicted to opioids, but we have to be humble that um, there's a lot of people we don't help. And, you know, I don't feel proud of that, but it's the truth. And I feel even more so the case about people who are addicted to the stimulants, cocaine and meth and so on. So it would be complacent and um, and lazy to say, well, I think we know enough at this point. So we don't need Mm -hmm. to innovate anymore. Uh, That's when you when you have a family in front of you. And you know and they're they're crying and you're crying, uh, and you want to help them, and you feel like you can't, you know that that's not an acceptable answer. We have to keep coming up with uh, new things.
3: Yeah, yeah. And could you impart any uh, um, words of wisdom or or motivation to our staff to continue to innovate, not just in this area, but in general, what would you say in, to the to our staff?
2: That you know there's huge opportunities to transform lives in this area, I mean, utterly transform lives in a way that don't exist in lots of other areas, you know? So if you, you know, if you treat schizophrenia, which is a terrible disease, you know, um, very rarely do you see somebody go from being homeless to running a company or, you know, being, a, you know, hugely successful, um, you know, community members. Sometimes you do, but it's not super common. Whereas in addiction, it is common. The difference between the bottom and the top for people is really startling. And I know people who are just in the most dreadful circumstances who are now, you know, now, running big companies, or our beloved moms, beloved dads, the best teacher in town, you know, an outstanding police officer, a, you know, a terrific state legislator, a member of Congress, a movie star—I mean, it, it is incredible how much people change. And seeing that is very, very gratifying. So you know, that's—it's really worth it. I mean, you can make just astonishing differences in people's lives with addiction. And I encourage anybody to. You know, to try to do that and, and and just feel that joy that comes from seeing when that that miracle of recovery happens.
3: Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, hey, Dr. Humphreys, I want to thank you so much for being on this episode. It's been fascinating, and I feel like I got a rock star here on the on the podcast. So I really appreciate you uh, um, sharing your your words of wisdom with us, and um, it's been a pleasure to have you on
2: the podcast. Really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks so much for having me.